Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Karim Jo Amarsh from, the Un- uh, from New York University Grossman School of Medicine on this show. We're now sitting in front of the beautiful ATZ at uh, EMBL Heidelberg at the, the transcription and chromatin meeting in 2022. Um, and Karim, please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. Um, you conducted your graduate work with Patrick, Patrick Kramer at the Gene Center of the University of Munich. You then joined Bob Kingston's laboratory at the Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Sco- Medical School in Boston for a postdoc. And finally, you joined the Skirball Institute in March 2013. And right now you are at the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Pharmacology at NYU Medical School. So, yeah, so as we are uh, <laughs> sitting outside, there might be a little bit of atmosphere in the background. So I hope that's not uh, impacting too much. But uh, yeah, just for, uh, for the audience to know. When we start uh, the podcast, a uh, question I like to ask every guest is, uh, how did you get into biology in the first place? So what inspired you to focus on biology? Um, well, my, 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 you know, I have parents who are medical doctors and, and, and also my grand, grandpa was a medical doctor. And, uh, you know, I, um, I think the interest, um, interest in biology stems from, from this, that, that, that everyone at home was, was always interested in this topic. But I also had excellent uh, teachers in uh, Poland, where I grew up, uh, you know, who were very passionate about the topic of biology. So, so I, I you know, I came p- to love it through other people, so to say. So, it was they were inspired by other people? I so was inspired say? by other people. That's correct. So, when when did you decide that the academic path is the right for you? Um, decide that. I really decided this very late because um, I think I was really inspired by um, by I mean it's some it's 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 interesting I I saw Patrick Kramer's paper uh, in the library so that was a paper of of, of ten subunit RNA polymerase two um, which he published when he was a postdoc in in, in Roger Kornberg's lab and and I, I i thought this was amazing and uh that was the first time that i actually thought about uh, pursuing um you know phd um so i was quite late to to the game in terms of my decisions what to do for the future i, I just really fell in love with with uh, with looking at the structures of of proteins and so so that was like kind of my tipping point where i decided okay i really want to do this but that's that's interesting because it was like really abstract looking at a paper and then you joined actually his his laboratory right to work with him so how did this then uh, go because i think right. it's, it's really nice to see that you well there is actually a person behind the paper and then you really work with him right so i was very lucky because i actually dropped him a, a, an email and uh, i asked him if if um you know if he will um you know, so when he when is he starting his own lab? And he told me he will be starting a uh, lab in Munich. And uh, you know, he was one of the labs that I I applied to, and and you know, um, was was uh, I guess I uh, was lucky enough to get a position in in Patrick Kramer's lab. And and you know, I was first graduate student. I I I 
and uh, you know it's it's the rest is history <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you worked then there on on point two maybe you can just briefly go over what 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 you started on in your scientific career right so um when i joined i there were several projects that um um that patrick discussed with me to 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 pursue and i thought that uh, because my initial uh you know um sort of interest uh, was sparked by by the structure of of this uh, 10 subunit um rna polymerase 2 i thought that the next uh, logical step would be to determine the structure of the of the whole 12 subunit um enzyme because enzyme for for transcription initiation needs 12 and not 10 subunits and so um i thought that this is a, a great great project to 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 start with so what is the difference then? Wha what are what is missing? What are the two subunits? Yeah, the two subunits they are basically um, um, we what we what we had to do is is basically we wanted to see how the whole complex looks like in its in its initiation um, competent form and um, and for that we needed to uh, complement the ten subunit core which was purified from from yeast. I mean we we grew these hundreds of liters of <laughs> of, of, of yeast and. And uh, uh, a purified, uh, you know, uh, ten subunit enzyme over large, uh, gigantic uh, columns. Uh, uh, all of that, all these purifications were done in the in 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 you know in the cold room. Um, and then we we basically had to uh, express these additional two subunits in um, in another system, in E. coli system. Uh, so this was an overexpression system. We had to complement the ten subunit core. And um, the lab, um, the primary tool of the lab was, was uh, X-ray crystallography. Um, and so the next uh, step was to, um, to grow crystals of uh, this reconstituted 12 subunit uh, uh, enzyme. And uh, yes, solve, uh, solve the structure. And so, so this was quite a journey. And, <laughs> uh, you know, we were lucky enough to 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 have someone extremely experienced uh in the lab also that uh, could provide uh you know both patrick and and a very senior uh technician claudia she she provided a lot of training as well in terms of protein you know purification and 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 um, and it took a while but we managed to reconstitute this complex we got crystals relatively fast and i mean then the only thing that we had to tweak was 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 to make them diffract and uh, you know have this diffraction to the you know to the point where we could actually solve the structure and uh yeah the enzyme looked uh, looked looked amazing uh, you know uh, initially we obtained quite a low resolution when i say low resolution it means that you cannot interpret atomic contacts you don't see side chains yeah. interacting with side chains but you see more like an architecture and um, and that was our initial result, but this was very exciting uh, because we saw that this this subcomplex actually makes contacts that lead to closure of of a one feature of polymerase, which is which is a clamp. So so polymerase can can have two conformations, open or closed conformation, and this complex was forming like a wedge that would that would close the clamp, and and it was a beautiful structure. Yeah. Yeah. So moving on, um, you moved then to Bob's Bob Kingston's lab. So how did you s decide on moving on to his lab? Well, again, I, I saw a paper um, <laughs> which I really <laughs> loved. 
um, seems to be a theme <laughs> yeah i mean i think reading um i mean literature is, is so important i i think that that some some uh, you know some papers just uh you know make so much sense to you i mean the the paper was by um nicole francis bob kingston and and chris woodcock and uh what this paper showed is ba basically um an activity of um um of a protein that's called posterior sex comps um which is part of the polycomp uh, repressive complex one in flies and the activity is uh, um is uh, an activity in protein uh, compaction so uh, the PRC1 complexes are very important for um, for gene repression, for silencing, heritable silencing um, um, of genes, and uh, PRC1 is, is is one of the so to say um, uh, drivers of this uh, of this uh, silencing. It binds to chromatin, and Nicole could show actually that um, it compacts chromatin. So I thought, okay. Let's look at chromatin compaction as a, as a mechanism uh, of gene silencing, gene repression. So I looked in the field and it turned out that actually there is not so many, uh, or not at all actually, there were no structures. So I thought, okay, I have a, a, an excellent training from, from Patrick Kramer's lab in X-ray crystallography. Um, you know, I can purify large complexes. I will join Bob Kingston's lab and I will work on polycomprepressive complex one to maybe go from you know these blobular structures that were very very low resolution to actually something that um, that we can uh, determine the mechanism based uh, on, on higher resolution data. I didn't succeed <laughs> in, this <laughs> in this project. I spent quite a quite a few years in Bob Kingston's lab as a postdoc. Um, we know now we we know why these proteins are, are difficult to, to at least by X-ray crystallography, they are very difficult to crystallize and, and so so right now we have different tools. We have cryo-electron microscopy which which, uh, which is probably preferable technique for these kind of uh, questions. But I, I started working on another complex which uh, sort of uh, polycomp uh, complexes are, are found in higher eukaryotes also in some yeast species but but more known for their action in higher eukaryotes and um, there is a, a complex in in um, in in budding keys in S. cerevisia which is called the sir complex which stands for silent information regulator and this complex is also known to silence uh, silence genes in an epigenetic fashion and we had some some um, understanding about this complex because uh, there's many fantastic groups that actually studied biochemistry genetics and and so there was a little bit perhaps more knowledge when it comes to to properties of these proteins and their behavior in in in, in biochemical experiments um, and i focus in this complex on on the nucleosome uh interacting domain of a critical critical component of the complex which is SIR3. SIR3 is the protein that also you can throw it on, on chromatin arrays and it will you will see that the same feature like with, with PRC1 is that the chromatin arrays will be will be compacted. Um, and this protein has a domain at its end terminus which is very well characterized genetically. There's a lot of mutations um, um, mapped to this domain that destabilize silencing in, in, in yeast. So we're interested in the structure of this domain on the nucleosome, and we, um, you know, I, 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 tr 
tried to 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 um, to determine the structure initially. I failed, but then, you know, going through the literature a little bit more, we found out that there is actually a hypermorphic mutation that um, that uh, um, results in um, that was that was found actually in genetic screens that um, D two O five N mutation that um, that basically increases the affinity of the protein for uh, for chromatin. And so when I used this particular construct, uh, very soon I was able to obtain crystals and to my pleasure and, and, and uh, we you know I was able to to solve the structure of this of this of this of this uh, critical chromatin domain on the nucleosome and this um, this was amazing because we could actually you know the single structure explained approximately 40 different mutations that that, okay. that that could be mapped you know over 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 decades of work basically in these that uh, that that destabilize uh, you know formation of uh, of silent chromatin it also explains something very important which is uh, for years we knew that actually um, uh, lysin 16 on histone h4 so histone h4 has many lysins you know lysin 5 lysin 8 lysin 12 lysin 16 and lysin 20 these uh, lysins, um, um, you know, um, 5, 8, 12, 16, they can be acetylated. And uh, we also knew that actually acetylation of a single residue, lysin 16, acetylation actually destabilizes formation of silent chromatin. But we didn't really know why. We know that part of SIR complex is actually contains SIR2, which is, um, you know, which is deacetylase for lysin 16. But from the structure, we actually learned why lysin 16 has to be deacetylated prior to binding of the BH domain of SIR3. It is because actually there is a pocket that accommodates lysin 16, and the epsilon amino group of lysin 16 establishes all these contacts in the pocket. That if you would have acetylation of this residue, it would actually destab destabilize the interaction. Mm -hmm. The other nice thing that, uh, that the that the structure revealed was was um, there are significant contacts with uh, of sir three BH domain with uh, lysin seventy nine and again I <laughs> mean this is one residue which actually you know is methylated and is methylated by a very famous protein dot one um, in yeast dot one L in 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 mammals and this. Um, lysin 79 on the nucleosome uh, makes also contacts with SIR3BH domain. There are a bunch of, you know, um, interactions there, and so our prediction based on the structure is that if you methylate this residue, you're gonna also decrease the binding. So the single structure actually explained two different things of regulation of silent chromatin yeast. So, so we were we were actually quite happy, um, uh, and 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 obviously this is the paper that made my postdoc and and, and uh, put me in a good position <laughs> to apply for faculty <laughs> jobs so yeah that's exactly the point where you started your own lab so what was your plan in terms of projects to carry out i mean you had a lot of experience in structural biology and things right. like that so was that like kind of the path forward for you um yeah so uh you know, my my scientific goals didn't change really from 2006 when I wrote my uh, you know human frontier science fellowship, which I uh, which I got, which was to understand how silencing proteins actually regulate um, you know conformation of chromatin and therefore transcription gene expression, etc. So I started my lab again. There's uh, interesting projects are still uh, and there will still be for for many years. 
is how these um, different silencing proteins, um, you know, uh, what what do they do to chromatin to to silence genes? How do they change the conformation of chromatin? What's their role in transcription repression, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. So you know, obviously, when you think about uh, gene silencing in 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 higher eukaryotes, you think about um, you know um, facultative heterochromatin and facultative heterochromatin. These are the chrom heterochromatin. These are polycomp complexes. Polycomp repressive complex two, which is histone H3 lysine 27 uh, metal transferase, um, deposits the mark uh, that is very important for um, for gene silencing, um, and then this particular histone modification uh, is um, is a uh, is bound by polycomp repressive complex one. At least what we now know are canonical complexes, a canonical uh, flavor of, of PRC1, so to say, um, which contains, you know, a CBX protein that can, that has a chromodomain then that can recognize K27 uh, trimethylation. But right now we know, you know, that there is many different polycomp complexes and, and there's many different pathways uh, that... Uh yeah, you didn't focus on PRC1, right? Your interest was in PRC2. Um, I'm. We are interested in both, but <laughs> I mean, when we started our lab, we continued, you know, with X-ray crystallography, and um, you know, at the same time, the the revolution in cryoelectron microscopy happened, and and so we we retooled ourselves. We, um, you know, we still, um, you know, published a paper on um, uh, on the BH domain, homologous BH domain. That this time, this BH domain was from origin recognition complex uh, uh, protein one um, and we looked at the how uh, this protein reads histone modifications on the nucleosome and this was I believe uh, the last x-ray structure of a nucleosome complex that we saw so we had to retool ourselves we had to start um, using cryoelectron microscopy which is uh, which is an amazing technique to tackle these dynamic and and, and transient uh, macromolecular complexes so so there was this big revolution in the field and 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 uh, um, we were you know I was lucky enough that uh, my brother is a, is a, is a, is a trained cryo yam person that used this method for many years and uh, um, you know uh, we could uh, learn the method also from him and 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 um, and uh, pursue this method as our new method of choice for solving these large structures um yeah so we focused on you know um i have uh, um i'm interested in in the pathways so i'm not you know we are not like just uh, we interested in 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 the pieces of the puzzle because at the end you know us and others will solve the whole puzzle but it's not going to be one structure that will solve all of it yeah all of it so um so we started with prc2 um and uh, and some other proteins which we didn't manage to uh yeah, I mean it's a yeah. a succeed or fail approach, right? If you do yeah. crystallography, right, uh, there is not much you can influence, or you have to don't have like intermediate results, right? You either you go all the way or you just fail. Is it is right? I think persistence is very important in this job, and actually capacity to take failure and and uh, a certain dose of of I don't know self punishment. <laughs> <because> <laughs> you have to you, you certainly have to be a little bit bullheaded to um, uh, you know to do uh, classical biochemistry and um, and um, 
and x-ray crystallography was very demanding in terms of your purity of your proteins and uh, and and you know cryoreme is much more forgiving when it comes to it's very you know it requires also uh, um, you know every structural technique requires you to know your proteins very well and requires you to be able to purify them and and know when they feel comfortable and then only then you can actually ask the structural questions um, um, but I think x-ray crystallography required more I mean required more material and I think it did not tolerate many impurities so so you had to you had to always there's always a fight to get your protein more happy change pa change salt change you know additives and then there was crystallization and you you know you either get crystals or you don't and sometimes you get crystals they don't diffract so you go back you 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 know you try to to trim you know some flexible part that prevents formation of crystal lattice and you know with cryo em you you know you 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 um, basically you don't need that much protein and you know um computational methods uh, allow you to 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 sort of sort out uh, the trash from yeah. or junk from from you know from something that looks good um so uh it's a little bit more forgiving method and it's a method of choice for studying chromatin complexes and you have to see that that it, it led to huge boost in the whole field i mean we are able to as a field, we are right now able to see structures of, of protein complexes that we would not have been able to, to see using, uh, uh, perhaps using X-ray crystallography. Mm. So more recently, you also looked at dot one l right? You mentioned this in the beginning, and you yeah. also looked at that, like mechanisms of activation, function, and regulation in the chromatin context. So can you maybe talk about this a little bit? Correct. So. Uh, Dot one is uh, in general. I mean, there is a lot of enzymes that mark active active genes. I mean, you you have you have you know the whole M MLL family, which are H3K4 metal transferase. Uh, you have H3K4 methylation. You have H3K79 methylation. You have um, H3K36 methylation. Plus, you have a lot of uh, other modifications. You have ubiquitination of uh, of histone H2B in yeast. It's it's at lysine 123 in in mammals is is uh, H2BK120. Um, that is uh, ubiquitinated, um, and you have a lot of course acetylation of histones. So there is there is you know these 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 nucleosomes um, on active genes uh, as well as as nucleosomes on silent genes. There is a whole variety of modifications that you can find them. Now it's very interesting to understand you know mechanisms uh, first of all to understand the function of these modifications but also to understand uh, regulation of proteins that deposit them. So dot one is, uh, is one of the prime examples of, of a protein that, um, that is regulated via transhistone crosstalk. What it means is that modification on one histone tail can regulate the complex that deposits modification, different modification on another histone tail. So here, on for the example, same nucleosome? can be on the same nucleosome. Um, so here um, we have, for example, it's been known for many years that H2B ubiquitination stimulates the activity of dot one. And activity of dot one is to deposit K79 methylation. Which okay. is inacti an inactive mark. Which is an active mark, yes. And uh, you know, th there's of course a debate in the field whether these marks 
are positive or where did the that would have been a question to ask you okay. what is your view on on, on all this well, uh, i'm 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 so so i will i will tell you first i yeah. will finish so so what we were interested is what are the mechanisms that regulate dot one okay we know dot one is very important we know that in mammals dot one is uh, deregulated in leukemias which are called ml mll um rearrange leukemias and um dot one is and k79 methylation are deregulated in these leukemias and so we wanted to understand the regulation of this metal transferase and first question was how does ubiquitination of histone h2b regulate dot one activity and so what we did um and um not only us but there were four other groups you know how does ubiquitin stimulate dot one activity and so we found that it forms actually interface where ubiquitin is uh, uh is bound by uh, by dot one or binds to dot one and this positions dot one in a more catalytically competent conformation okay dot one can actually um is less flexible so to say so i mean it's more potent it's more catalytically active it's uh, in in a better position to deposit metal mark on k79 um and so this was our uh the so five groups published on on this topic we uh, uh the nice thing <laughs> is that that all of these groups had we had all different slightly different data so it all led to a great understanding of of how ubiquitin contributes uh to to activation of of dot one but the next step um you know uh, was 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 also very interesting because i mean it's been shown that uh, um that acetylation i mean of h4 can stimulate dot one activity as well and this was actually best shown for the yeast version of the protein um and we could show that um because now there are amazing tools um uh, on the market uh, so we're able to screen i mean we used uh, we bought a panel of um, acetylated um, um, nucleosomes and we looked which of acetyl marks or so slice in five or eight or 12 or 16 um, which one of those acetyl marks stimulates dot one activity we figured out was uh, lies in 16 on histone h4 mm -hmm. um, the effect was specific to this particular uh, acetylation mark and uh we uh generated nucleosomes that had both ubiquitination as well uh, of of histone h2b as well as acetylation of lysine 16. we solved the structure of this type of nucleosomes okay. with dot mm -hmm. one we compared this structure uh with a structure that was just missing this acetylation on lysine 16 on h4 otherwise everything was the same so we could then see the structural rearrangements that are the uh, result of, of having this acetyl mark. And we indeed saw that actually two important things happen. First of all, when we look at our cryo-EM data, we've noticed that actually um, having both acetylation and ubiquitination, uh, most of our dot one is actually in, um, in the catalytically uh, competent position, which means that again, the, the active site is next to the substrate lysine. And we saw actually that there are several different structural rearrangements in the proteins themselves. So uh, histone H4 is ordered in the structure when we have acetylysin. Um, part of dot one is ordered, and we could then, because the structures were at very good resolution, um, we could 
install we could basically do point directed uh, side direct mutagenesis to 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 look at the impact of the mm -hmm. the interfaces and uh, also in collaboration with with uh, with uh, uh, others we 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 actually look in the east and we saw that actually both of these modifications acetylation as well as ubiquitination stimulate dot one activity that was a fun story yeah uh, we we really liked it yeah so coming back to the your view on active and inactive marks and what is causative and was what is not or what is consequence yeah um <laughs> you know i i think that i think that um that um there is very nice uh, data that um, involves uh, mutations of, of histone uh, residues and, and by mutating a particular residue either to arginine or to to to, um, to, uh, to yes or to um, glutamine uh, for example you can you can actually see the or to alanine you can you can see the result of, of uh, uh, whether there is uh, effect that is that is basically uh, directly uh being the result of basically of a mutation of particular histone residue uh, a lot of effects i mean there's a lot of discussion obviously because uh, histone lies in metal transferase because we are talking about these enzymes right now uh, very often you see that there are different phenotypes that stem from catalytic inhibition and from the deletion of the enzyme so um, i believe that sometimes there will be a direct effect sometimes the modification will play the major role very often the the protein itself would play a major role because the enzyme can have you know you can have a scaffolding function you can have a function to recruit uh, other proteins right i mean that is not dependent on the catalytic activity you can directly change the chromatin maybe structure via you know via particular um, types of domains uh, but at the other loci, maybe the modification that the metal transferase, uh, you know, deposits is the most important. I, it will depend on the context mm -hmm. and uh, at the particular enzyme, because I, I think I think that um, for some of them we know that they are direct um, effects of modifications. For others, we, you know, I think there is still a debate in the field. Yeah, so it will depend. Yeah, as always. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> So, uh, since we are uh, already deep into the interview, um, I want to get to the end. So, what are you working on currently, or let's say in the in the span of the next five years, so one grant away? <laughs> one so grant away. Well, we definitely want to understand the polycomp repression still. So, the project didn't change. I think that the tools changed, but the project uh, projects uh, didn't change. Uh, we would lo we would love to 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 you know to get more understanding of the polycomprepressive complexes and their impact on chromatin structure, their regulation by other histone modifications, their you know regulation perhaps by, by, by nucleic acids like RNA. Um, these are the things that, that I think will, uh, will take us some time to, to understand and uh, us and others obviously because I mean the field is big right now and so we have to navigate mm -hmm. our way. So to finish off this interview, I have two more rather general questions. The first one, did you at one point of your career face a situation that we have reached a dead end and did not know how, which way to go to unravel the questions you wanted to answer? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. No, no, I have, you know, I, I, have, a, I have a good network of, of, of um, of people that I love discussing science with. I mean, that's one of the reasons why, 
you know why it's good to go to meetings but uh, also i have uh, colleagues at the at the institution but also outside that uh, if i you know um, i'm stuck i like to just go and discuss uh, with friends with colleagues and and there is always uh, someone always offers a new view mm. on the on the problem because sometimes you are so clo close to the problem that you cannot see the you know the the, the next uh, the forest uh, in front of the trees exactly. or the trees in front of the forest yeah you know what i mean yeah. so so it's i think it's it's important to um uh, your question is not whether we get frustrated i think we do get frustrated very often because things don't go our way but if you failed let's say for the 10th time i mean you know it's just you have you know less experiments to do to figure think out you know i mean it's it's you have to i mean you have to love what you do because yeah. uh, you know but it's in every profession like that I that's think. true so in the last 35 minutes we have taken a journey through your scientific career can you maybe just provide a short summary about your most important finding or something that we might have missed um I don't want to say what, in my opinion, is my most important finding because, I mean, you know, I'm very immensely proud of work that I've done <laughs> during my PhD, <laughs> equally proud of what I've done during my postdoc, and every single story that, that comes from, from my lab I'm very proud of because I think this is, you know, result of a very hard work of people that work there, and I think there are no better or, or, or you know, or worse stories. I think, you know, it all leads to figuring the big picture. and. Um, Yes, um, I don't know. I think that's that's it. I mean, in terms of, I, I cannot comment yeah. on which one is the <laughs> best story. <laughs> okay, thank you, Karim Joe, sure. for your time and for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.